Today, we are talking to a winemaker who makes wine in Michigan. Yeah, you heard us right. They make wine in Michigan. So joining us on the podcast today is Drew Perry, and he's going to tell us about the wines he makes in Michigan, what makes them both challenging and special, and what he loves about making wine. So here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Wine Pair Podcast. I'm Joe, your sommelier of a reasonably priced wine, and for this special episode, I am on my own, as my wine pairing partner in crime is busy making cakes for her baby cakes, Michael Bakery, which you can learn about, by the way, if you head over to her website, lovebabycakes.com. Now, as a quick orientation to our podcast, what we usually do in each episode is learn about, taste, and review three wines that are reasonably priced, which means under $20 and should be easy for you to find. However, for these special sets of episodes, we interview people who are involved in actually making wine. Because part of what we want to do in our podcast is educate ourselves and you on different aspects of winemaking in a fun and unstuffy and even entertaining way, as Decanter Magazine has called our podcast, and that's what we're doing today by interviewing Drew. And a small plug before we do the interview with Drew, if you like what you're hearing or are interested in hearing about our regular episodes, please subscribe to our podcast so you can hear more, especially since you're only getting one half of the Wine Pair podcast in this episode. You can also go to our website to send us a note or subscribe to our newsletter, and you can follow us on Instagram at the Wine Pair Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, you can leave us a nice rating and review. How about that? Okay, but in the meantime, let's get to the interview with Drew Perry. Hi, Drew. Welcome to the Wine Pair Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. So for all of you listening, Drew is the director of winemaking for Simpson Family Estates, which includes... A uh, couple of wineries, Good Harbor Vineyards, and Aurora Cellars, and we're super happy that you're here with us today, Drew. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. It's nice to just come in here and uh, get out of the cold. We just wrapped up harvest, so it's it's a nice little break for me. Yeah, that's what you were saying. You've been doing a lot of grape pressing, huh? Yeah, yeah. We're wrapping up all of our reds right now, so uh, tomorrow will actually be my last day. We'll be finishing off with a couple Cabernet Francs, and uh, that should wrap up the season. Just in time so, for Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, that's kind of my goal, is <laughs> <laughs> to, to hit that right up against the edge of Thanksgiving. Uh, gives everyone a little bit of a break to get away and uh, kind of uh, refresh and figure it out, figure out what it is that we just did for the last couple months. That's right. Yeah. So for those of you, when we uh, release this, it probably won't be near Thanksgiving uh, quite, but uh, so you know when we did it, you'll know exactly when we did this. Um, But I'm super excited to learn about you and to honestly learn something that I don't know a lot about, which is the wine industry in Michigan. And I think, you know, when most people think about winemaking areas in the United States, we're thinking about places like California or maybe Oregon or where we are in Washington State. Um, and maybe even like the Finger Lakes of New York, but I don't think a ton of people are as familiar with the great wines that are being made in Michigan. So I'm super excited to learn more about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about you, Drew. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and and then we'll we'll talk about your wine adventure. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been doing this, oh gosh, for going on not quite 20 years this will be my 20th harvest next year. So I'm on, I just wrapped up 19 here. So um, it's been something that I've, I've been doing for a long time and that's my passion. It's 
it's something that it took me a long time to really figure out what it what it was that I wanted to do early on. Once I kind of settled into this sweet spot and accepted that this was going to be something that would really satisfy both my kind of creative need and my scientific need, you know, I once I just embraced that, it allowed me to kind of follow that path. I went to Michigan State University originally, um, quote unquote, pre-med, which really just meant undeclared. After a little while, I I figured out that that wasn't quite working out for me. More so just I wasn't taking it quite seriously enough, to be honest. After a while, I I discovered that there was this viticulture and and enology program. Um, I knew about it because my father actually happened to be the head of horticulture at Michigan State. And the program was actually underneath it. And so I was one of the few people that even knew it existed. So I went ahead and tried the program out because I was looking for something that, you know, like I said, could sort of satisfy that kind of full full need for me. Oddly enough, my uh, father actually canceled the program while I was in it, um, which I always found was kind of strange. Um, but I ended up being one of the only people to actually finish that program at Michigan State University. So I finished uh, I finished both viticulture and enology. And after that, it just kind of went from there. Um, I went out to Napa and worked out at Pine Ridge. And oh, in 2006, I decided that I, I wanted to get back into the Michigan industry and uh, I wanted to you know, be a part of something that was growing. And so that's when I came and I uh, came up to the Traverse City area um, out on kind of around Leelanau Peninsula and started working with somebody there. And it's kind of just been a a great experience ever since. Well, I have tons of questions for you, Drew, so we'll get through those questions. (laughs) But I want to, I mean, there's so many, but the first thing I want to ask you is, Growing up, were you exposed to wine? Were like your parents, in, you know, in, into wine? Was there any sort of like wine in your in your background? Yeah, it it's one of those things I always try to deny that there was because I um, <clears throat> had always kind of resisted following in my father's footsteps to some extent, um, or at least I thought I could. Um, he actually. Uh, got his PhD at Texas A&M University, and and his his dissertation was actually around the development of wine grape growing in Texas, and basically proving whether or not it would be viable. And so, a lot of that industry really started was really getting pioneered at that time, and he was one of the people that kind of helped get that going. He afterwards, you know, came up to Michigan to to work at Michigan State. Uh, gave up the the grape growing aspect to focus on cherries and apples, but that was always sort of a passion of his. And you know, he kind of made sure I understood it was an important part of life, basically. From there, and then, did your dad bring the mm-hmm. department to Michigan State, or was that something he brought there before he he killed it? I want to talk <laughs> about that too. Like, there's so many things going on, but I, I'm yeah, curious about I, that. I do feel like it needs to be uh, actually said in a very abrupt manner because that's certainly how it felt. Um, so he he was a part of trying to create that program initially. It was really spearheaded by um, somebody named uh, well Dr. Stan Howell, who was a well-known uh, viticulture, just physiologist, fine physiologist. And he wanted to really get a program going because 
he was a viticulturist there at Michigan State at the time. He was very into just kind of the whole whole overall concept of what we could do as an industry. And he was one of the people who kind of spearheaded the relationship between the university and the industry. And so he was really trying to create almost like a feeder program for people to get, you know, trained actually at a university and then go into the industry. After that, just kind of, yeah. <laughs> It didn't last long, I'll tell you that. Uh, The program only lasted, oh gosh, I want to say maybe nine years total. Um, The issue, strangely enough, even though we're a burgeoning industry and we're growing, was that there weren't enough opportunities to really place people in the industry. And there really wasn't quite enough support from the industry, kind of vice versa, to the university to make sure that there was always like people interested in going. So it was, it was a little bit of a mess. It was a good opportunity. And, and you know, I, I was lucky. I got to be one of the few who actually went through it, but yeah, needless to say it was not long lived. Well, you, you answered the question why it was, it was discontinued and they haven't, they haven't brought it back. Have they? Not in that form. Um, there is, there's, a program that they actually joined with a couple of other universities to create sort of almost like a network program called Vesta, which uh, focuses on viticulture or enology. And it helps to, you know, give people either certification or actual, you can get, you can get a bachelor's through there. Um, and it could be through different universities. So even up at our Northern Michigan uh, college here, you can take those courses in order to get accredited. Yeah, I got it. And then then super interesting too that it was hard to to place students. Is the university at all close to where the main wine growing region is in Michigan? No, it's not. Um it's in East Lansing and so you have two major regions. You have um you have Southwest, you have Northwest Michigan. So Southwest Michigan, you have a, a big region and that was started you, if you think Welch's Welch's grape juice you have a lot of juice grapes that were were grown down there. And that whole industry just boomed because of that. And then they started actually figuring out they can grow wine grapes. Um, the Northwest Michigan industry uh, took a little bit longer to get going. And there were a few pioneers. They do have extension. Um, MSU has extension at, you know, in both locations working with the industry but the industry in Northwest Michigan here, where I am, is definitely younger to some extent, although we do work with our sort of Southwest Michigan cousins, per se. We'll talk in a little bit about Michigan, again, like the wine industry in Michigan, really mm-hmm. want to learn about that. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about you. So yep. you got your you got your major and then you, you know, started working. Did you have like mm-hmm. a, was there somebody who was like a real mentor to you or somebody who really kind of was influential or taught you the ropes? Yeah. I mean, there was actually quite a few people um, in all honesty. So I, um, when I started going through the program, I really, you know, I really got to kind of admire a lot of the people who are sort of the pioneers of the industry, because in all reality, our industry is so young they were still going, you know, it's not like the kind of industry where it's, you know, you're just talking about the history and that history is long in the past. The history was still working and the history was still building this industry. Um, and so we had um, people like uh, Charlie Edson, who was a winemaker who actually started Bell Lago, which is a winery up here. And he was actually, uh, he actually 
how there was a relationship with him and uh, the horticulture, horticulture program in which he was underneath my dad for a short period of time. And his wife was a well-known researcher as well. And so I just got to know him and just really admired, you know, his, his insane scientific approach. And um, he was just, he's very much just the mad scientist. And I, you know, he actually occasionally let me come up and help out do what we kind of call a, a wine camp. And this is before I ever finished school. So people like him really, really kind of got me going and got me really interested. And there were a few other people in the industry that I just, you know, really just thought very highly of just seeing how they were shaping everything. Um, you know, you have your Larry Mobbies, who's kind of the father of, of bubbly here in, in Michigan. And, and then you have uh, even Ali Lutz, who was sort of that next generation down, um, who was very important and, and sort of pioneering us. But then you have, you know, the sort of the father of our company, which is Bruce Simpson, who really did. He really just took a lot of a lot of chances. And it was really great to see just some of the things that that he did and and how they all panned out. You know, Bruce was a he was a, he was a great man. He was hilarious, very a very giving person and yeah, he took a lot of risks and being one of the first people that really got this thing going. It was him along with uh, four other people that really were some of the first in this area to to grow anything, to say that we can do wine. And, you know, he, he took that risk and, you know, we just kind of all learned uh, from him and learned from everyone after that just to see you know what what were your mistakes what were the things that really drew you to this and um, there's a lot of people like that and when i started in all reality the next person really would be uh brian albrick he was the one that first gave me an opportunity here in uh in northwest michigan and he uh he owns a winery called left foot charlie and I knew of his winemaking and uh, where he had previously been and really, you know, just thought the world of his, of his wine styles and, you know, and, and just his passion for it. As soon as I had heard he was going to go start off his, uh, start his own thing, I just, I wanted to jump on board and, and try to be a part of that from the beginning. I guess that's kind of a long rambling way of saying, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people that really did, you know, shape both my my interest as well as, you know, responsible for shaping the industry. And when you think about the type of wine or the wine style that you make, is there something about, you know, we can talk about those influences, but is there like an approach, a specific type of approach that you take to how you make your wine or what you want your wines to be? Um, <laughs> what I tend to find is the most successful, in all honesty, is not being overly dogmatic. Don't, don't be stuck in saying, this is what I do. And this is what I am. And I'm going to shape my wine like this. Because what's exciting and what's really, what really makes this industry interesting is the lack of predictability and all the chances you get for experimenting and for, you know, just, just to try to do something different. Um, you know, our, our foundation, our strength is always going to be aromatics. And so we start there. And so that's like where we kind of say, okay, here's our foundational style. We want, we want to drive our aromatics. And then after that, we, our, our other strength really would be say our, our acid profile. 
um, and how our asset is developed and structured. And then you just kind of go from there and you say, okay, what is this season going to throw at me? And how can I just make the best wine possible? Because I, I deal with so many different wines, so many different vineyards. I can never really say I want to make wine in a certain style. What I want to do is just try to work with each vineyard and try to make the best decisions possible with the variables I was given that year. Um, you know, we're coming off of a season where the, the chemistry was a little bit different across the board from what I've seen in the last six years. It's a little more reminiscent of something I was seeing um, about 10 years ago, which is interesting. And, you know, that when I see that, I, I want to make changes. I want to try new things. And, you know, it's it's always exciting to see just what each year is going to give you because they are so different each vintage is up here. It's interesting what you say, this idea of like, don't be dogmatic. Cause I've heard that before. I, I interviewed mm-hmm. a little while ago, Carl Weichold, who's at Stoller Wines. Interestingly enough, he started in Texas as well in the wine industry and he's in Oregon now, but he had made this comment about, you know, not being too dogmatic and letting kind of the, the fruit kind of talk to you and just yeah. kind of get the most out of it you can. And so kind of on, and you've brought this up now a couple of times, but kind of on that note, like, do you lean more towards the the art or the science of wine or both? And like, how do they how do they come together? It's 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 a scientific art, which is a weird thing to say, but that's what what it is. Um, because you know what I always tell people when it comes down to, to winemaking, it's it's one of those things where we need to understand the science as much as possible, and then that that doesn't just go for the winemaking that goes for the viticulture because that's obviously where you're starting. And that's what I, I love about this is that you're shaping everything from the ground up. You're not just fermenting something um, and then aging it. You're, you're making these deci- decisions and you're shaping things from the get go, from the plant. You're trying to work with what you have and really express it in the best way possible you need to know and understand it from a scientific perspective as much as possible because you do have so little control. There's, there's just, there's so little that you can do to really guide things in the proper direction that you need to know as much as possible because you can't just say, I'm going to, I'm going to add this and I'm going to get this result. I'm, or I'm going to do this. And then this result is going to happen every time. You know, it's, it's a much more complex kind of creature in that way yeah there's just so many variables i mean for the most part we we like to refer to it as an art because of that fact that we're just we're shooting from the hip and we're just we're really just using these what we call instincts which really are just kind of based around experience and what we hope will happen we can't always guarantee things are going to work out and i i just went through that uh with all of the crew um in the winery today where we were going over how this season turned out we were going over every wine and while i wanted to say that all these wines would turn out in a very specific way because that's what the data said it would it didn't line up there were surprises left and right and that's kind of part of the art of it is that you're hoping you just make the right instinctual choice and it it turns out in an interesting fashion um so you're kind of you're you're definitely using both you're you're trying to use your your experience and your senses to express something, and you're using your scientific background 
to try to make these decisions that are at least informed and trying to nudge this thing in the right direction because you will never have true control. I love that idea that like you kind of have to be ready for surprises. And you were talking about this year. So this year where the surprises sort of like during the growing season or when the grapes were coming in, like when did you like this every year, I'm assuming is pretty unique. So what was unique about this year? Or maybe that was different by the different varietals. I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Just sort of broad spectrum. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. All of it. Um, and, and that's the thing. It's like every, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now up here, and I haven't seen two seasons that are very similar to each other. It's, yeah, this year it was a little bit of a weird spring. And so, you know, we were, we kind of changed up some of our pruning methods and we had a lot of young vineyards that were just coming online. So that right there adds a ton of variables. Um, so we have a lot of new things between new fruit, new sites, new methods. And then as we went out throughout the season, we had some some kind of irregular weather where we had a lot of just spikes of heat followed by big chill downs, followed by spikes of heat. And by the time we hit August, we were feeling pretty good. We had already kind of passed the point of passed the point of a bad season, which is a very important point uh, to hit in every growing season. You sort of hit this hit this kind of marker of okay, if everything crashes today, we're going to be fine. And that, that we at least hit that mid-August. And we thought it was just going to mellow out uh, with the way things were going. And then all of a sudden, there was a surge of, of heat at the very end of August um, into the beginning of September. And that's what really made the season there. That sort of surge of day-night temperatures, these spikes of heat, these you know chilling off uh, you know the temperatures at night, really made for some dynamic just precursors and the aromatics that we were able to develop and really made for some interesting chemistry that we haven't seen in a few years. So it was a pretty fascinating season altogether. And it was great just to kind of show some of the people haven't been doing it quite as long, just sort of what I've been telling them. I a lot of times just tell a lot of back in my day stories mm-hmm. and uh, just a lot of here's what what I used to see in terms of, you know, just various chemistries and things. I finally got to show some people, uh, see this, this, this can actually happen. So it, it was a, it was a fun year. It was a busy year just from our company's perspective and the industry and just everything. It was, uh, it was interesting for, for sure. So it sounds to me in your winemaking, you spend a lot of time with both the grapes or out in the field and with the mm-hmm. juice yeah. But is the, do you, do you spend more in one than the other? Do you pref, like, do you love like spending time with one more than the other? Or is it just sort of 50, 50, or does it depend on the year? It's definitely not 50, 50. Um, you know, the way I look at it is that you can't make wine unless you understand what's happening out in the vineyard. And in order for me to make the best choices, I need to understand it well enough and at least have some say and, be active in the vineyard, but I also understand my own limitations and where my strengths really are. And, and my strengths are definitely much more winery suited. Frankly, we have some awesome farm managers and vineyard managers, and you know they're much better at uh, handling the day to day and handling some of those duties than I am. But you know, it, the the best part is you know weekly we can get together, we can go around out to all the vineyards, and we can just kind of talk about how things are going and. And some of the decisions we need to make in order to get the results that we want. 
And then we can also track that year in, year out to see, you know, what have we been doing? You know, how are we gaining in our efficiencies? What can we implement? But in in all reality, my focus needs to be more on the winery just because that's we don't have as much experience there. And so that's where I can make the biggest impact. Yeah, overall, it's I, I feel like I need to have my hands in a little bit of everything so that I at least have some sense of, you know, where things came from, where they're going. So that I can at least have some sort of impact in terms of the decisions that are being made. Um, but yeah, if you're looking percentage wise, it's probably more of like a 80, 20, mm-hmm. so 20% vineyard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this thing that many people, including me, don't know a ton about yet. And mm-hmm. that is the wine industry in Michigan. What, you know, what, what, what's special about the wine industry in Michigan? You talked some about the acid and aromatics are a little bit different. I know it's kind of more of a cool climate. Like what is special and what should people know about Michigan wine? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's always tough to explain to other people. It, it's fun watching people taste Michigan wine in, in regions where, you know, there, there's a, you know, vast history. We're we're young. The the thing, honestly, that's probably the most interesting about Michigan wine is the growth phase that we're in. You know, it's it's really just cool to see where we've been and where we're going, and we're we're in this this really just interesting kind of waiting to boom phase. And so, yeah, I, don't know, I, I just kind of think that you know people would be excited to kind of jump on and and understand and and say to their friends and everyone else that they they knew this was gonna this was gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, we're in a, a unique microclimate here. It's a pretty amazing little spot we have, that uh, sort of Goldilocks zone. You know, we're, we're not just somewhere that's trying to just kind of grow everything just to see what happens. Um, what we have is just uh, a climate that's really controlled by the, by the big body of water we have here in Lake Michigan. And, you know, just the shape of our peninsulas. And if you really look at this industry as a whole, we're, we're really just standing on the shoulders of a you know well-documented ag industry and fruit growing industry. You know, we're actually known more than anything for cherries here. And the one thing about cherries is that if you can grow cherries, you could probably grow grapes there too, just in terms of temperatures, cold, frost, um, nutrients, just all the different variables that you need to kind of meet in terms of minimums, they're there. And a lot of times there's crossover in those fruits. So in terms of Michigan, it's just we have this this climate that never gets really too cold. So a lot of your typical um, European, your vanilla varieties can actually survive here. And then we have this long fall that's usually pretty drawn out. And that allows us to actually get some of these wines, actually some of these grapes actually ripe that you wouldn't really anticipate us being able to get right. Um, you can't do this everywhere in Michigan. It's 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 very specific as to the locations as to where you can do it. You go a few miles too far inland and you can't grow anything other than maybe soybeans and corn. In all reality, it's there's these weird little spots all throughout here, um, whether you're talking Northwest or Southwest Michigan, where you can grow wine grapes. This area um, is really unique mostly for the for the fact that you know, this this land here is it's glacially shaped and it has some really unique uh qualities you know if you look we have uh sleeping bear sand dunes right off of us here and that's you know obviously left over from 
as the as the glaciers move through, just the way it all carved everything. And then we just have hills everywhere that create just some great, you know, sun exposure, cold air drainage. And so we have all of these great opportunities for planting grapes and maximizing all these different sites. It's a, it's a really, it's a kind of a little bit of a Goldilocks zone, but it's really unique just because of its soils and because of just the overall climate itself. You know, we have really interesting dynamics between you know the heat of the day and the cool of the night that that really lend itself to creating a lot of aromatic potential there are other areas kind of like this but you know if you look at say like a finger lakes or a, or even like an okanagan valley there's some areas in in oregon they're a little bit cooler we all have just slightly different slightly different things that kind of make this this whole picture and you know most of that's just built around our soils and just our overall climate. Well, I had the opportunity, you know, you mentioned, and I want to talk a little bit more about it. So I had the opportunity to try a few of your wines I had. Mm -hmm. And one that really stood out to me uh, was the Pinot Grigio. And the reason why it stood out, you know, because a lot of times I think of Pinot Grigio, people kind of, you know, it's it's a light wine. It's sort of, um, you know, sit by the pool. It's, you know, sort of a, I don't want to be disrespectful because my background is Italian, but kind of a throwaway wine sometimes. And I was really impressed by, it had some richness, it had some depth to it. It was a little bit like, it was different. It was Mm -hmm. different than I expected. And so are there varietals that you specialize in or that you focus on or that you feel perform better in this area of Michigan? Yeah, there there definitely are. Grigio is one of those that I find myself overly defending usually, especially when it comes to just other winemakers in the area. What I realized after a while is that I like Pinot Grigio because I like how hard it makes you work for little reward. But there is reward there, you know, and there's a, there's a lot to work with. It may not have this like cachet of, of, of ever being known as this amazingly expressive wine, but it has so much potential and depth. It's just really hard to peel back every layer and really make sure it's all expressed. And so it can be that sort of one note, quote unquote, cocktail wine, which it commonly ends up being. But frankly, it's it, it just takes a little bit more effort and work to kind of take it to that next level and have something that's dynamic and interesting. And so that that's always one that I I, I love making. Um, it's it's definitely one of my favorite wines to make, partially because I I like standing up for it. It's sort of the uh, the, the little brother that I always want to defend for some reason. Um, I just feel bad for it. I don't know why. Uh, you know, and you know, besides that, we always have our, you know, our standard go-tos. People often say Riesling. Riesling's sort of what we're known for when it comes to white wines. And when you're talking Riesling, you kind of have to get past the whole concept of sweetness. You have to kind of get past that, that sort of barrier that people have, the thinking that it, sweet is bad. It doesn't always have to be bad. There is a quality there and it can be something that's good. And Riesling doesn't always have to be sweet either. And, you know, dry Rieslings are this kind of weird, haunting, abstract thing um, that I always find really interesting. And beyond that, I think there's a lot of things that we're starting to find are, are working 
really well in our environment that I was always a little nervous about. Started playing around with Sauvignon Blanc lately. Um, we've blended quite a bit and it's something I've been really enjoying both growing and making. It, it is a, a difficult, fickle wine to make. Um, it's pretty easy to grow. It's pretty happy in our environment, but that's that's definitely, I think, going to be a strength moving forward. I gambled with Alvarino a few years ago and so far I'm enjoying it. There's a lot of of white wines that I think are well suited to our environment. So it's, it's as long as their strength is aromatics and acid, you know, we should be able to really capture that. Well, I'm 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 glad you're a defender of Pinot Grigio and I will just say again, <laughs> your your Pinot Grigio was fantastic. And and I do I'm assuming, you know, again, uh kind of like Okanagan, I see it, right? A lot of <clears throat> the wines that you create, a lot of white wines. There's also and I'm a big white wine fan. My wife and I are actually big, uh, you know, Despite yeah. the fact that it seems like you have to defend white wine sometimes as well. <laughs> yeah. But um, but the other thing that I was super intrigued by, you know, you talked about making Cabernet Franc, but you also have like, you have Zweigelt, which is not super common in the United States to see. And so I was really yeah. intrigued by that. And so obviously you're aiming towards some of these like lighter bodied reds, mm-hmm. but how did that wine come to be? <laughs> That was um, that was the uh, owners Sam and Taylor. They are you know basically family to me, and that, that was like a, a lunch that they had where suddenly they just randomly. It, Taylor has a lot of experience in wine sales, and and they were just trying to drum up an idea of what would be really interesting, and and she just suddenly thought of Zweigel, and you know it really it's just being that it comes from where it comes from you know it being austrian in, in nature it's like okay this this grows somewhere that it can survive there it could probably survive here let's just see what we can do um I, i'll admit that half the time some of the decisions are just sort of uh lunchtime decisions and you're just like you know what let's just try this out and see what happens and that's what happens when you're a young industry you just sort of uh like i said you shoot from the hip and see what happens we we know though by this point, um, and after this, these what four good strong decades of of you know people really doing a lot of production up here, what works and what doesn't, and what works is cool climate reds, cool mm-hmm. climate whites for us, and what that ends up meaning really is something that will ripen, something that can you know be structured, something that when it's not sort of overripe has a lot of interesting qualities you know so if you look at something like a blanc frankish it's you know or lemberger it's one of those wines that you know if you grow it in say washington it can kind of get over the curve of almost being too ripe sometimes and it loses some of the quirky characteristics whereas we're able to maintain a lot of like the strange kind of qualities of it, you know, where you get, you have these uh, sort of blueberry reduction, crack black pepper notes. And it's, you know, it makes for a fun wine, but it's light bodied. There's a lot of those types of reds that they have so many interesting things going for them. And it may not be what everyone's used to in terms of reds in our current market, but it's, it's, you know, I think it's something that's going to keep gaining in popularity because what we do in terms of red wines, so we make red wines that are honestly really good food wines um, just because of their acidity, because they're they're not going to be overbearing and dominate the food. You know, they they tend to just really delicately play and they're 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 interesting. They kind of open up and develop 
so much over time. You know, we're not going to have like these you know, massive cabs, uh, cab solve, you know, but it's, and we can have some really expressive Cabernet Francs. We can have some, you know, really just dynamic Blanc Frankish and Pinot Noir is one of those ones where give my left hand to, to make a great Pinot Noir. Um, that's, that's the one wine that to me is sort of the ultimate accomplishment because it's so difficult to grow. It's so difficult to coax everything out of it. And it's so difficult to, you know, really land in the right spot when you're aging it. But it's something that is achievable, I think, in our, in our region and in our area. I really love the way that you're talking about this. Cause I think, you know, we live near the Okanagan and my mom grew up there and, and I, okay. but I think, um, I think there is a lot of pressure on wine growers. I'm sure you feel this, especially in up and coming regions like, well, you better make a Cabernet Sauvignon. You better make a Chardonnay. You better make these wines that people yeah. want to buy. And that's the the flavor of the day. And what I find a lot of times is that like in, in Okanagan, which has a short, hot, really mm. hot summer, like their wines get super hot like really hot when you're trying to make something like a Cabernet, like it just doesn't have enough time. Whereas they make beautiful white wines, like great white wines. Mm. Um, anyway, I just love the way that you're talking about using the region and what the region can give you with the grapes and maybe trying to make some of these different types, different varietals that may not be top of the charts right now, but when you make a beautiful version of it, mm. then people start to pay attention. So I really like that approach. Yeah, I think it's always going to be our strength. I mean, I, and you see that even in this area, there's still a lot of people that sort of want to market themselves as being almost somewhere else, remind people of, you know, Bordeaux, try to remind people of various areas in Italy. And we need to really get people to focus on here, get them to focus on this time, this place. And show them our strengths. We, we, can, we will never succeed if we're trying to make something in a way that someone else does. We'll never succeed if we're trying to make a Burgundian Chardonnay. We'll never succeed if we're trying to make a an Oregon Pinot Noir. We need to embrace what we do well, um, understand our limitations and our strengths, and just really try to maximize that. And it's taken us a long time. You know, it's taken us a long time just to figure out what varieties do really well. And then once we got past that point, we need to figure out what clones do really well of those varieties. And then what sites are really well suited to those varieties and those clones, you know, and then, you know, once you get past that point, you got to figure out what style of winemaking. Um, and then like, we've started really getting uh, pretty heavily into, into bubbly production. And, you know, one thing I've been trying to drive is sort of that uh, cube close that, that uh, tank fermented uh, method. And I think that's something that will really be a strength of ours. Bubbly in general, it's a great region for that. You know, it's it's something that we really need to like understand the things that we do well and kind of embrace that and not worry about trying to be what someone else wants us to be. Yeah, I love that. Okay, question back about you, Drew. Yep. Is there something, you know, in this career now that you've had for a while in the wine industry, is there something surprising or interesting or funny or something that you've learned about yourself since you've been involved in this industry? <laughs> I, I'm a little insane, a little neurotic. Um, I don't know if there's anything 
I've, I've learned too much other than uh, just kind of seeing people's reaction to me. You know what I've really learned, honestly, more than anything, is I've kind of enjoyed getting to this point where even though I'm, you know, talking to you and talking to other people, I've, I've sort of enjoyed sort of being a ghost to, to some extent where the people aren't out front talking about the winemakers, you know, the winemaker as being this rock star. You know, it's great. I've really enjoyed being able to see the, the growers, you know, get attention and just kind of being able to sit back and work with all these different growers and try to basically kind of take their, their vision to fruition rather than worrying about marketing the winemaker. Cause frankly, I can't stand listening to myself. I can't watch myself. So I would much rather just watch, you know, watch the growers, you know, really get, keep flourishing and watch all these different brands and, and see their growth. It's, it's, it's really great to see. I make wine for a lot of people and, and just being able to achieve things for them uh, is great. Just kind of being able to be behind the scenes a little bit. You know, I, I don't mind stepping out every now and then. It's fun for people to see. But, you know, I, I think I've, I've kind of settled into my spot of, I like to uh, sit behind the scenes and watch this industry as it develops. Well, I appreciate that. And I can promise you, everybody hates the way that they sound, but you are, this is, <laughs> this is a great conversation. I really enjoy the stories. So uh, one, one more question for you. Yeah. When you come to Seattle and you'll come to Seattle at some point, or when I go to Michigan, there you go. Um, we're going to, uh, you know, we do this thing in, in my family, me and my mm -hmm. wife, we have a Sunday night dinner. We're mm -hmm. Italian American on both sides, big family. Every Sunday night we meet, we have a, you know, three course meal. It's usually Italian foods, whatever. And so you're invited. It's a big deal to be invited. You know, not everybody okay. gets invited. So it's a big <laughs> deal. So we're bringing you and yep. uh, you know, my big question is since you're the wine guy, yep. what wines are you bringing of yours? Are you bringing to Sunday night dinner and why? What are you having for dinner? Well, you know, it's going to be pretty traditional. You know, we'll start out with, uh, mm -hmm. we'll have some antipasti, you yeah. know, the typical cheese and meats and that kind of stuff. And then we'll have the first course will be a pasta course, usually a red sauce pasta course. And then with the main, it will be some sort of, you know, like protein, like a, mm. a beef or a pork or something like that, that we'll have with the main. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to bring one thing. First of all. That's so, good. That's good. We that. want more than one. Um, I do struggle with with red sauces the acidity it's really hard for me to kind of pin what what's going to work best sometimes i'm surprised by what works and what doesn't so i'm probably gonna shoot for the uh the appetizer and then first for the main course um just sort of depending on what it is so i'm, I'm probably gonna bring something like a probably actually something like an albarino to uh for the starter and then oof, really depends on you know, what the, that meat fare is, whether I'm trying to kind of sort of cut the fat with, with some Cabernet Franc or something that's a little more delicate. Um, and depending on the sauce, uh, Blau Frankish could actually do really well. So yeah, I don't know. I'm going to bring a few things and I'm not going to bring, you bring them Italian because <laughs> I don't want to have that expectation. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll take multiple. You bring multiple okay. and we'll decide, you know, we'll decide which, which goes best. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I also have a dark secret that, you know, I, I always, I always tell people at all these wine dinners that I, uh, 
when it comes, everyone always wants to know, like, what would you like to pair with what? And I, I, I what do I like to drink? What do I yeah. like to pair? And, and my, my dark secret is, is that I don't. <laughs> and when, usually when I go out to a restaurant, it's like, I will absolutely, because I, and I understand and appreciate the whole concept of, of how everything works. But when I, when anytime it's my wine, I get way too into my own head and I mm-hmm. just, I, I, I don't want any interference. I'm going to sit there and just have the wine on its own and then I'll kind of move into the food. I, I, I'm never, I'm never great with, uh, with pairing, at least on my own, but you know, for other people and their own experience. Yeah. I'm game, but, uh, Isn't yeah. that interesting. Do you think you're just too close to it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, yeah, I, 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 if I'm out to dinner and it's maybe if it's just like me and my wife or something, I'm, I'm what I'm going to end up doing. And I know I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to have it. I'm going to just sit there in my head and just say, you know, what they do, how they do it. Would I do the same thing? Where do they go? Right. Where do they go wrong? You know, it, does this remind me of something I did? Did I do the right thing? And it, it, it just snowballs and it just gets out of control real fast. I love it. I love it. It's okay. Well, I'm just here to say again, I've tasted your wines. You have nothing to worry about. They're fantastic. And they pair, they do pair, they're great acidic wines. They mm-hmm. pair great with food. So, you know, we'll, it will work. I'm not even worried about it. Well, good. I'm glad they enjoy it. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's often it's one of those things to just bring as many things as possible. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, Drew, um, anything else you want to cover before we, before we go? Um, Love to kind of give a shout out to our our brands, you know, whether that's Aurora Cellars or Good Harbor Vineyards and our region of uh, Leelanau Peninsula up here in Northwest Michigan. Um, you know, beyond that, I like to keep it simple. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Drew. And we'll have we'll have links. I'll uh, at the end of the episode, I'll give more information about where you can find Simpson Family Estates, and we'll have links in our show notes. But Drew, I just want to say thank you very much. I know you've had an exhausting week and sounds like a exhausting couple of months. Uh, so really just appreciate you spending some time with us today. And uh, it's been a real pleasure just to talk with you and get to know you a little bit. Thanks for getting me out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I needed this. This is, uh, this is great. Now it's always, you know, it's good to, you know, it helps me get perspective um, when I get to talk to um, people who are doing what you're doing. It's, it's always fun for me. All right. Well, thank you. We want to thank you very much for listening to our interview with Drew Perry. And now we know the truth. They really do make wines in Michigan. It's not a lie. So just in case you're worried about memorizing all this information, don't worry. You can find out all of this information on our website, thewinepairpodcast.com. It's in our show notes for the episode. But so you have it, here are some websites for you to check out. Simpson Family Estates at simpsonfamilyestates.com. Good Harbor Vineyards at goodharbor.com. And Aurora Cellars at auroracellars.com. And we hope you will visit those websites. We hope you're subscribed to our podcast and follow us on Instagram and visit our website, thewinepairpodcast.com, where you can reach out to us and sign up for our newsletter. And you can also reach out to me at joe at thewinepairpodcast.com if you want more information. And we look forward to hearing from you. But for now, it's time to go. And as we like to say, life is short, so stop drinking shitty wine. Bye-bye. Too much, I'm with you too much. I'm
Mama. 